Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the award-winning Commerce Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Zakowitz, and on today's episode, we're going to be speaking about the general topic of retail in 2018. And if that is not narrowed down enough for you, you're just going to have to listen to figure out what we're going to talk about today. Joining me in today's conversation is the acclaimed Ted Rubin. For those that don't know, Ted is a leading social marketing strategist, author, and keynote speaker. He's a CMO of Brand Innovators, co-founder of Prevailing Path, and just recently added CMO of a local Raleigh-based company named Photofy to his portfolio. So welcome to the show, Ted. Well, thanks, Greg. I'm really excited to be here. I know we had to cancel this once due to uh, me coming down with the flu that's been running around this country. And I, I got to tell you, it's been probably seven years since I had the flu, so uh, I, I was knocked on my butt. So thank you for, for being flexible for me. Anytime. Uh, so you travel a lot. Did you get the flu shot? I did get the flu shot. Um, they're saying that this year that it's not a lot of use, although I still tell people get it because if there's one strain it's going to protect you against, then great, you know, do it. But yeah, I got the flu shot. I travel a lot. But I, I, you know, they say it was running rampant around CES and I was at CES. And a lo- apparently, I mean, companies were debilitated from people coming home from that show, you know, it's like a, a petri dish. You know, everybody's shoved in all these rooms together, and, and you're seeing people you haven't seen in a while. You're hugging, you're back slapping, you're kissing. You're, you know, it's it's really kind of no surprise. But um, like I said, I, I haven't even been sick in, in probably 18 months, even with a cold. And this thing, I mean, when I kept thinking I'd be able to do our call. And I just, I couldn't even think straight. I mean, you know, normally when you're sick, you know, at least for me, if I get a cold, it's kind of like, oh, great, I'll stay home, I'll watch catch up on old TV, maybe I'll read a book. Like, it kind of sucks, but I'm okay. I couldn't even turn on the TV or, or read a book. I was just sleeping. That is awful. And uh, I'm, it's going around my office right now, so people are just staying home like the plague, just which I appreciate uh, by all means because I have two small kids at home. So I certainly appreciate that. But there's no one immune to it nowadays. Right. You know, the thing about those conferences, too, I always think about like someone has a tissue and they put it in their pocket and it's the same pocket where all the business cards are. So you meet someone, they give you a business card and that thing was lying against their tissue. It always skews me out a little bit. Right. Well, uh, and, But the other thing so- is it's kind of like – marketing or or retail you got to engage with people and it's also how you like in marketing and in retail when you talk to people when you hear them out you learn from them it's like building antibodies you know you you figure out what's important and what's not and you got to get out there because otherwise your body is not going to be immune to anything in the future so I, I always try to write everything to how we engage with people sorry about that sorry for jumping off the off the off the target there <laughs> That's the episode. See you, everyone. <laughs> uh, no, not a, not a problem at all. It's, it's, so, Ted, I mentioned a litany of involvement that you had at the uh, the quick intro for yourself today. So, you're involved in a lot of things in the consumer space. You know, you're involved with a lot of companies. Can you spend a couple minutes just kind of giving the audience a little background on yourself and, and what you're most deeply involved with nowadays? Sure. I'll try to make it quick. I'm 60 years old, so you certainly don't want me going back to the beginning, but uh, I'll bring it up to the digital age. In 1997, I discovered the internet. Uh, I said, wow. This, I was looking for something new, and I said, this is not just new for me, this is new for everybody. And, and I happened to read an article that was an interview of Seth Godin, and I thought the guy was brilliant. And at the end of the interview, they said, do you have any job openings? And he said, well, nothing in particular, but I always hire a smart person. That's the way I'm building my company. So I wrote him a, I wrote him a letter, yes, a letter not an email, with a, with a printed resume. And, and he also said, I need people that can sell anything because this is something people have never sold before. And my basic tenant of my, of my letter was, um, I'm your guy. I can sell anything and I'm smart. 
And believe it or not, yeah, he, they called. And that my first job in the internet was with Seth Godin. I was sitting across from him. My, my family had stayed in Florida. I made the critical mistake of moving in with my in-laws up in New York for a little while. Don't ever move in with your in-laws, especially if they're like the Costanzas. <laughs> All I did was scream at each other. But I think everything happens for a reason. And that got me, I'm not an early riser, but that got me the hell out of the house before anybody woke up every morning. And it got me as the first person at Yoyodine. And the other person that was always there that early was Seth. So I had a lot of intimate, Seth liked to hold forth on his ideas. He was, he was just writing about permission marketing, which is a term he coined and wrote about, and it was a Fast Company article that became his first marketing bestseller. And I got to sit there with him, and I just was smart enough to shut up and listen. And, and so that was really the start of everything for me. And like I talk a lot about return on relationship, and I like to say it really came from there. Because it kind of branched out of permission marketing and knowing who your customer is and wanting them to want to talk to you. And then a lot of what I, I've always been, I always thought I was a networker. Because wherever I went, I connected with people and, and I made new friends at every company, at every school, at every event. And what I've learned over the years since then is that what I, I'm really not so much a networker as I am a community builder. All my friends know each other. I introduce them to each other. I bring them together. And of course, social pl I did that before social platforms. And now with the advent of these platforms, it's made it something that's even that much easier to do because I'm doing it constantly, minute to minute. And, and people are doing it for me because Greg sees that I'm talking to John, so Greg Greg jumps out and starts communicating with me, and then the three of us come together, and then Greg or you know John meets. I mean, everybody that I know knows John because of how much we're together, and and he makes friends that way, and I make friends that way. But what I try to do is when I see those interactions and engagements happening, is I bring those people together. I, I in the past I always did it uh, via face-to-face get-togethers, so it was limited because there's only so many hours in a day and so many places you are that you can do that. But now I'm able to do that digitally. You know, I call it looking people in the eye digitally, which means actually getting to know them, engaging with them, reading their stories, knowing a lot about them. So I, I progressed through the, the Yoyodyne got acquired by Yahoo. I worked for them for about six months after the transition. I moved over to 800 Flowers. I kind of made my way through the industry, and I ended up, to, to fast forward, in 2008, I joined a company called Elf Cosmetics, eyeslipsface.com. And it was a company that was family-owned, selling cosmetics, had built their company with no marketing budget, all word of mouth, and they kind of hit a wall with traditional word of mouth in the five to six million dollars in sales range. And they were looking for a chief marketing officer that had a sales background because they needed that person to be sales focused and they weren't going to hire a separate, you know, they had a couple of sales guys, but they were really looking to break into the mass market uh, digitally. And it, for me, it was a very fortunate happenstance because I was introduced to them by some people. And it was when, it was when social marketing and social platforms were just starting to scale. I mean, YouTube was probably the biggest at the time, and it, it was fractional to what it is today. Twitter was launching, you know, was out there. Facebook was out there. Facebook really only about a year or so before that had been op become open to the public. And I was at a place where there were no lawyers, there was no budget, the, it was family-owned. They were just like, if you can do it and we don't have to pay uh, uh, for, for advertising, you know, go do whatever you want. So I was very lucky. I had a product that women loved, 
And remember that, first of all, there is no social marketing without women. It ceases to exist because men don't, en masse and in the major percentages, don't communicate that way. And the ones that do are learning to. Uh, also, I was selling a product to women, and, and women make night probably, I think, a responsible, I think the number quoted out there is 80 to 85%. I think it's more like 95% uh, of responsible for products. And they love to talk about it. And I was selling something they all loved, which is cosmetics. So I got this amazing introduction into the power of these platforms. And I jumped in with both feet. They had a few things out there. I shut them all down. MySpace was still existing at the time. And I maintained it for a year just because it was still there. And I, I just was very fortunate to jump in at the right time early on with a product that was perfectly suited to it. And then all these, there were a lot of these other guys out there experimenting with it. Jeffrey Hazlett at Kodak, Barry Judge at Best Buy. And they were doing some things here and there, but they were limited by their corporate structure, by their legal teams. And I just had the good fortune of meeting them at conferences. They saw what I was doing and they were, they were intrigued. And then we'd sit and brainstorm and I'm sitting with these brilliant guys who are coming up with great ideas where normally at the end you'd probably fight over who got the chance to execute it. And they said, oh, no, no, you do it. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to worry about anything. Go ahead. Go try it. Feel free. And I got to implement a lot of these things and just learn very early. And, and we, we built Elf from 5 to $50 million in sales. Um, I, it was a family-owned business. They were not interested in sharing equity, but I got my equity. My equity was my personal brand equity and the experience I gained there and the foothold I gained in social. So I left. And, and over the years now, since I left there, they've gone public. They have a, over a billion-dollar valuation. So it was it, a lot of what we did there was, was groundbreaking. And then I I moved to OpenSky, which was like the first social commerce kind of site that was looking to scale. And I met John Andrews right around when I was at Elf. And John was still at Walmart, but getting ready to leave and start collective bias. And fortunately, I got involved as an advisor from the beginning and then joined full time after OpenSky moved to a um, celebrity curated kind of thing because the peer to peer commerce wasn't scaling quick enough. Um, you know, and you know how that is. Most VCs are, are very um, short-term oriented. If things don't happen right away, uh, you know, they want to return on the money. They they pivot a lot, and it gave me the opportunity to to, to move full time over to Collective Bias, and we got to learn so much more there. So, you know, Collective Bias. John and I were there till 2013. Grew the company to about 20 million in sales. Um, subsequent to that, they grew it to about 50 million in sales, and the company was acquired last year by Inmar, another relatively local company to you, I think. They're based out of Winston-Salem, uh, and the company uh, traded uh, above $100 million, so that was a, a great experience. And now John and I have been just, you know, we're very interested in retail. John has the Walmart background. I have an engagement relationship thing. We come together as great partners. We started Prevailing Path, where we were really using it as a vehicle to study the path to purchase and the way it's changing. And again, that John is really the thought leader in that place. I help evangelize and, and bring... Um, eyeballs and awareness to all these concepts he's coming up with and I then I lend the whole engagement you know uh, relationship side to it and and then you know John joined the Photify board a few years ago we've been watching them the, the product was a little bit early on at that time uh, I made a few intros for them and some of the retailers and direct sales companies just felt it didn't have what they needed but since then the the the, the app it has just added incredible app you know uh, abilities 
And John and I just see, you know, and, and, and also at the same time, content has become so important to retailers, to, to, to CPG companies, to direct, to direct marketers, to direct sales companies. And uh, companies have come up with this challenge of how do they scale it and how do they scale it where it's, where it's brand correct, where they're comfortable with it, where they, where they can actually empower their employees, their direct sales people, their customers to share content that, that, they're, that they're happy with. So I'm really excited to, you know, look, John and I have been business partners for 10 years. He, he kind of, I like to say he drags me where, wherever he goes. By the way, uh, that fortunate dragging has made my future secure. So I tend to smile and say John's dragging me somewhere, but inside I'm going, oh man, yay, John's on to something new. This is going to be great. Um, and we work so well together. So I hope that that kind of covers it. Um, I'm very focused on Photofy now. I'm very focused on retail. Um, I've been doing more. I'm, I do a, ch a Cheddar TV segment, so I've been doing a lot more of that kind of work. And then I still, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm associated with a company called Brand Innovators. Um, I MC host the majority of their events. They do over 50 a year, so I'm doing 30 plus events a year that's strictly with brand marketers in the room and, and new apps and new platforms and ways to solve their problems. So, you know, I, I get to hear what's happening every day and it's very exciting. Yeah, it's very cool. Thanks so much for the, the detailed background as well. So John Andrews was, in case anyone's not aware, was a guest on the podcast a few episodes ago. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it's one of my favorite conversations. So certainly go back and listen to that. He, you know, he sent me an email and said, hey, thanks for having me on. Come check out the Photofy Studios one day. So we're trying to we're plan a time to, to go check out what's going on over there. So I look forward to that. So Ted, you mentioned that, you know, you always thought, you're, thought it for yourself as a connector. And before we get into retail here in just a minute, just a, a real quick personal story. A couple of years ago, I had just dropped you an email. It was actually a Twitter uh, a direct message just asking you a, a simple one-off question and he said hey here's my email address what's yours you know and you sent me a message and said hey here's the answer to it by the way I'm gonna be in Raleigh next week why don't you come out and have a beer with us for a happy hour which I certainly did I got to meet you face to face and that's how I met John and me and John stayed in uh, periodic communication since then you introduced me to a couple people who have uh, from a business perspective who have helped me with certain things so I certainly appreciate it but you know you're one of these people that certainly follow through and in your book certainly tell this tell the story behind as well but you certainly follow through with the uh, the connector and you know quote-unquote networking piece of it. Uh, so I certainly do appreciate that. And that, that's pretty much what led us here today as well. Well, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here. And I know John loved the time that he spent with you uh, on the podcast. So, you know, let's dig in. All right. So we're talking about retail in 2018. And, you know, things have, have certainly changed over the last couple of years. Uh, Photofy is a good, uh, just from a content perspective, a good example of this. So if you haven't checked out Photofy, hit up their website and see what they're all about. But, you know, when we're talking about the biggest changes that we're going to see in retail and e-commerce, this year, do you think there is one potential change that you're really eyeing that is going to be bigger than others, or is it going to be more something small that's kind of woven into the changes we're currently seeing? Simplicity, convenience, right? The kind of the whole Amazon model there. Um, do you think there's going to be a bigger shift into something on top of those, or is it is it still going to be convenience and simplicity, but just with other smaller things woven into that? Where do you see? 2018 heading for retail and e-com? Well, I, you know, I think you you know, and you just said it a few times, that, that John and I have been talking a lot about simplicity. You know, I, I, I believe, we believe that retail relevancy is becoming all about simplicity. That frictionless buying is the future of retail. Simplicity is, we like to say, is the new EDLP, everyday low pricing. Make it easy, and she will buy from you again and again and again. Now, now, why is that? People say, well, pricing's important. Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying simplicity and charge double. Obviously, you have to be, you know, around the right price range doing things. But people are also, I think, more and more 
even people at the lower economic income scale are willing to pay a little more if something's easy and saves them time because people more and more are learning the value of their time. Now, that wasn't always the case, right? You know, someone earned a certain amount of money. That's all they could earn. They, they had a job. It paid a fee. There was no overtime. They went home. And they, a lot of them wanted to get in and out as quickly as they could just so they could have the rest of their time to do their personal things. But now there's Uber. There's, there's Lyft. There's all these other opportunities. There's companies launching where you can find a plumber. You can find someone. Now people can just do errands for you. And, and excuse me if I'm not on top of the most current names because they're changing quickly. And I, I'm like I'm not an early adopter unless John adopts something early and then makes me adopt it. <laughs> but what I tend to adopt things after they, be they they become more worthwhile or they become something that I can rely on. But more and more people, this is becoming an age where everybody can fend for themselves. It's the age of influence where anybody can build a brand, affect change, make a difference 24/7, and for themselves, and not just by let's say building a brand, but by by doing errands for people, by driving a lift car. So. I can say to myself, if I can get in and out of the store quicker, then there's more things I can do. A lot of people are remote, you know, they're, they're support staff. They're doing things for people as, as digital assistants. So therefore, my time is becoming something. I, I don't care if you're digging ditches. There's going to be a site that's going to say, hey, if you want to dig a ditch from 7 to 8 o'clock at night, if you want to come help move furniture or help move groceries, that people more and more will be able to find a way to earn in their spare time. Now, what does that mean? That means their spare time becomes valuable. That means if I have to spend an hour more at Walmart, and sure, I'm saving $3.99, but I can earn $10.99 doing something else, then I'm going to start weighing those things. So now, we're not quite there yet, but, but if you look at more of the, uh, uh, on the higher end of the market, we're totally there. You and I both know what our time is worth. We, whether we charge for our time hourly because we're doing something, or we know that we can get one more account because we're out there selling, or take that time that we could have spent shopping, and now we can get more work done at work that, that earns us more money on a day-to-day -day basis, then of course we are going to want to click a button and have something delivered, or, or go to Whole Foods today and pick out what I want, and then in the future just have them deliver it. So, you know, I think the big thing is simplicity. And then if you want to go to specific, you know, things that are happening, well, you know, voice recognition obviously is really important. Alexa, Google Home, these things, I think that voice and conversational commerce is going to become very, very important. I don't think this is the year it's necessarily going to break out to the point where it becomes an important line on your, on your, on your um, sales line, on your sales items, where you're earning it. But if you look at the exponential growth, like back when I was at Elf in 2008, our biggest growth, like so most of our sales came from email marketing, from traditional uh, online marketing, from a whole number of other places. And our smallest dollar amount was social marketing, but it was our largest exponential grower. It was the line, if you looked at the line, it was growing at 75% a month. I mean, nothing else could keep up with that. So eventually that became very important. I think conversational commerce is going to become a much more important thing as we go forward. I mean, I'm doing it, I don't know if you're experimenting with it, but I bought, I've had Alexa buy a few things for me. Uh, John does it all the time. But more and more, it's going to become more efficient. And especially the way uh, Amazon is integrating it. And this is why, you know, another one of the, not the why, another one of the many reasons I think that Amazon owns retail. I mean, I wrote a post, hmm, 
God, now already, it's probably got to be, if I look back, I think it was 2010, but I wrote a post that said, Amazon is the future of retail. And, I, and my prediction was that in five to seven years, um, they would have more worldwide sales than Walmart. And I think that some of the experts were saying 10 to 13 years. And of course, that is everything being equal, Walmart making, not making changes. But I don't think Walmart's made those changes they need to make to stop that from happening. And that's because Amazon is integrating everything. You're buying your products from them. They are the search engine of choice for retail. The majority of people, when they want to buy a retail-based product or a CPG product or any kind of product, they go to Amazon before they go to Google. Google is totally the king of information, and of course, there's still people are still searching for products there. But I think Amazon sold three billion dollars in advertising last year because of all the, and, and it's going up again dramatically because of all the search that's happening at Amazon for products. And then they're taking all that information, they're taking your search, and they're integrating into the products they're showing you, then they're taking everything that's going on in your home with Alexa and the conversations you're having. And now, it, you know, very, now it's, it's so integrated, and I'm probably well behind the curve of how much they're doing, just because I only see it as I, experiencing it, as I experience it as a consumer, in that I can just go to Alexa and talk about the last, what were the last five things I bought Alexa? And I'll say, rebuy this, rebuy that one, rebuy that one. Or, you know, again, look for suggestions. Um, I mean, there's fights in John's house. It, it, it's funny. John will go, Alexa, order more peanut butter. And Shannon will go, Alexa, cancel that. Don't order more peanut butter. We have too much already. <laughs> <laughs> and now Alexa's recognizing their daughter's name. You know, you get a thing saying, oh, you know, thank you for your order of whatever it is. You're like, who bought that? So that's what I'm scared of in my house is, and Ted, if you haven't listened to the episode, I am one of these holdouts from, I'm not a Prime member, and but I'm slowly getting there because I still, I know, right? And I, my wife tells me it's just because I'm stubborn, right? Which is probably 100% accurate. I still buy from Amazon. I don't really buy from Walmart that much, jet occasionally, but Amazon still, a, you know, takes a good chunk of my wallet when I make purchases. I shop at Whole Foods. Now that whole integration is starting to intrigue me. I am in extremely intrigued by Alexa and other voice assistants. I was talking to my wife about the Google Home yesterday, and she's like, why, do you want to get one? Right? I think she wants one more than I. I am really scared of the John Andrews conversation you just had where my wife is going to be the one saying, Alexa, order me more peanut butter because we always keep stock in there. And I already know when I'm at work that she's probably got 20 packages a day coming and I'm scared that's going to exacerbate if she can just easily say something and buy it. So it might be a hesitation on my part, but to your point, it makes it so easy to buy stuff, right? And you don't even think about it. It's a simplicity on there. But, you know, there was a thing that came out uh, a day or two ago saying that Alexa, people that order uh, or have Echo devices spend more than Prime members do, right? Just in general, who obviously spend more than non-Prime members. So it's certainly increasing and I think it's just the ease of ordering one thing at a time, right? I need something I order right today. And I think you start to lose track of how much you're actually spending there. So, but Amazon has found a way into these homes. You know, it's funny what you just said about ordering one thing at a time, because what, what's going on is, you know, I'm, the, I'm a, I don't believe in Jet. I think Jet's a, a, a joke, really. I think that Jet is the creation of Mark Laurie, who's an amazing storyteller and is an amazing salesman. And I think he's a way better salesman than he is a marketer. Because Jet was built on products discounted at a level that could never be maintained. 
That's how they draw. I mean, you and I, you and you, John and I, could start a online retailer and sell it below cost and run up a billion dollars in sales. It's just not that hard, especially if you're spending fifty million dollars a month in advertising. So go out, raise a million a billion dollars to cover your losses and to cover some ridiculous, unsustainable amount of advertising, and grow up sales. And except we're not as good a salesman as Mark Laurie, so we wouldn't be able to trick. Walmart into buying us, you know, and I think I think this was all a plan. I think he knew Walmart was having trouble with e-commerce. I think he he was going to build a solution, and then that he that he would make it look like a solution. They spent more time at events speaking to marketers and to and to uh, and to investors because this company was up for sale always. So like so, but understand what Jet was built on. It was built on this concept: that the more things you buy, the better pricing they give you. They're building this dynamic, you know, algorithm and delivery system that the, that it lowers the pricing because it makes delivery and execution and distribution so much better. So you fill up carts because. And, and I remember Liza Landsman being at a brand in. Event going because people don't want to buy one thing at a time. They want to buy it in a cart. Bull. People want to buy shit when they want it. They don't want to have to worry about like the reason people would only go to the supermarket when they need a lot is because it was a hassle. Because you know what? I only want to go there once. I don't want to run in and out of there every day. It's too hard. Even I mean, I live only less than two miles from from Whole Foods, and and as much as I love grabbing stuff, I don't want to run in and out of there and park my car and go in. But I want to get things when I want them. Hey, I, I need peanut butter. Alexa, deliver peanut butter. Hey, oh my God, we're out of this. We're out of that. You know, let's just and I can order it. Then leave it to Amazon to figure out the things they can combine, the things they can put together. You know, as you know, Amazon now Amazon has this this thing. I, I, the name is slipping my head right now, but it's one of their services where they'll say, Hey, if you, if you need these three other things, you can throw them in now for no extra shipping. Um, and they're and they're cheaper if, than if you buy them separately. So they'll show it to me, and I'll say, oh yeah, throw that in, throw that in, throw that in. But they're not making me wait until I need too much. So I think Jet's whole original concept was based on a false premise. And I remember John and I making a video at one point. He was at my house when I was getting ready to move, and he was helping me with some of my getting rid of stuff and packing. And every day I'd get a box, like you said, that things appear on your doorstep. Like John likes to say that the doorstep is the new store shelf. And something would come, and John, and we get it on video. We get it on Snapchat or our Instagram stories. And John would go, "Ted, what's that?" I said, "Oh, I I needed um I, I needed ink for my for my printer. Oh, one thing. Wow, like yeah. And then oh, there's another box, you know, coming tomorrow because I want it when I want it, and I I no longer have to make that shopping list. I no longer have to add that stuff and wait until it comes up. And oh, I'm going to go to the supermarket next week. So back to what we talked about in the beginning. I, I think everything's going towards simplicity. And then there's another reason for that simplicity. It's not just because we because our time has a dollar value. It's because we're all becoming so much more busy. Because there's so many more things to do and so many more activities that are that are at our fingertips that we have less time to do those things that used to be, oh, Saturday morning, the family will go shopping to the supermarket or to Walmart. We we no longer want that on our agenda. So, I, and I think that, you know, again, I go to conversational commerce or, or voice commerce or whatever the, the title they're using now, is I just think that that recognizable ability, and then as it gets more sophisticated, you're going to be able to limit your daughter's ability to order stuff without telling you.
Alexa, you know, don't take orders from from from, from Lori or I, I don't know your your kid's name. I apologize. I probably should have done a little more research, although I'm not sure if you have it out there. Um, but those kind of things, I think it's going to become way more sophisticated. Where Alexa's going to talk back and go, um, John, I think you have plenty of peanut butter. So uh, just real quick, if you get a chance, it's like 15 minutes long. I did an episode. It might have been like episode five or six on the podcast here, but it was my my son. My oldest son is five now. His name is Matt. You, but right before he turned five, I actually did a podcast with him asking him about Siri and things. And just because he's going to be growing up with this, right? It's just this is old hat to him. Just say something and get an answer. You know, he said something when we were, I don't know if we were in the car, just at home one day. And I'm like, oh, I need to record this, right? To see what he thinks about this. Absolutely. You know, so if you get a chance to listen to it, it's about 12 minutes long. It's super quick. And you got to deal with a, a five-year-old talking, but it's it's super cute. But I say that as a father, right? So, but it's really interesting because he's like, well, just ask Siri, right? And I could order this, but I wouldn't order a pet on using boys, but I would certainly order that. And what don't you like about going to the store? Well, it takes too long. And it's all the things that we talk, or you just talked about, right. right? It's a pain to go to the store. He's talking about this because that's just what he grows up in. So Amazon has certainly found their way into, you know, kind of the king of the hill here. 44% of all online sales last year went through Amazon. So the question ultimately becomes, and you, you get this all the time, Cheddar, and, uh, when you're doing your appearances there, but how do retailers compete with Amazon? Because right now it's, and I'm just going to pick on Gap as just an example, but they discount themselves into a corner, right? And so I got to keep up with the Joneses to get this customer. And you're trying to attract customers with discounts, and that's just not sustainable from any stretch of the imagination. But Amazon doesn't need to do that because they can fund whatever losses they have with web services and, and, and things like that. So how does a retailer really compete with Amazon? Can, if they can, maybe they can't. And it's competing with everyone else outside of Amazon. Um, well, you know, first of all, I, 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 there's something I want to jump in on the comment you just made about how Amazon can fund their losses with other services. Um, Amazon's not losing money. Amazon's not losing money in their retail. They lose money when they jump into a new market and they've got to, you know, overexpose themselves and they've got to learn it. But once they learn and understand a market, they're making money. The reason it looks like they're not making money is because they're plowing every dollar of profits back into the business. I mean, they're making enormous profit. It's, and it's not just from cloud. Yes, you're right when they go into a new market. But look, Walmart can do that too. Walmart's got huge uh, profits. They can jump into a new place or a new market and fund it for a while. Uh, just like anybody else. So that, that was just something I, I wanted to say. I, I also just want to, sure. look, there is a real challenge. And and like, again, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it and John talk about it. A lot of these retailers are discounting themselves into into, into extinction because you just can't keep that up. And uh, a marketing plan isn't, we'll sell it cheaper. It's really hard to compete with Amazon. And I think you have to think about this. So I'm going to give you an example. I just discovered this company uh, called Mott and Bow. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they sell men and women's jeans and, and, and pants. And I like one of the products they make. And I got some, you know, I, I saw some of their ads and they were, they were put in, in the right place. And it was interesting to me. But then I ended, then I went to their site and they offered me 10%, you know, discount the first time I buy. And I, I was going to buy some pants until I found out that if I need to return them, I've got to pay a restocking charge. Like, no way am I buying those pants. And I, I mean, and by the way, it's $5, but I'm like, why would you, now, by the way, remember, it's pants and it's a company I've never bought from, which means there's no way I'm going to buy the right size the first time out. So what am I going to do? Uh, my plan is I'm going to buy, just like at Zappos, I'm going to buy a few pairs. So I'm going to buy two different sizes with two different leg lengths because they're all different. 
and then I'm going to find which fits me. And yes, in the future then, I'll be able to buy my size. But now I'm going to have to pay to return each one of those $5? Like, really? I'm out. So what do they do? Now I start getting emails, hey, come in today and we'll give you 15% off. So now they're <laughs> upping the number and they'll give me free shipping. So by the way, I was going to have to pay shipping to get them and shipping back for stuff that doesn't fit. And I'm like, you know what? I'll buy somewhere else or I'll go back to the place that I know what size I wear and it fits. So, and they don't have stores. So I can't stop in, so like when I'm in New York, I'll stop in their store, I'll figure it out. So there's not even that option. You know, again, with, you, know, you mentioned the Gap. The Gap, it, it, I buy from the Gap because the Gap, I, I can stop in a store. I, I do have that opportunity. So I think some of these companies that, first of all, I think a lot of them, their plan is to get acquired. Um, so they don't necessarily have to make that last sale. They need to get a product that people are interested in, and then perhaps a Walmart who's gone out and bought Bonobos for what reason, I have no idea. Uh, maybe because they want to be able to say they have a New York store, um, and, and, and Moose Jaw and these other things, mainly because I think Mark Laurie is being compensated for digital sales um, that he increases, so he, he's, he's, he's acquiring his way to those, to those goals. But I think that companies have to think about the Amazon effect and the fact that they need to be able to compete in a similar way. And, and there are retailers out there where they say, you know, returns are free. And, uh, and back to what you said is you might get extra boxes on your doorstep from Amazon, but it's so simple to return. I go onto the site, I click a button, they send someone to my door to pick it up. And what they've learned is just like every other uh, the, uh, company in the past has learned about breakage, that a lot of people won't return stuff even when it's not perfect, even when it doesn't fit. I mean, they just keep it. it, it even when it's as easy as it is, it, they just don't bother. And so that also helps to that effect. But I, 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 by the way, it's bothering me. I want to buy these pants, but there's no way. <laughs> there's no way I'm paying the restocking charge. And it, I think it's become a big part of the way we think. I, I wear H&M boxers. I mean, I know this is probably TMI for your audience, but uh, 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 too much information, but I'm throwing it out there. Um, and I went to buy. I needed more, and they want to charge me delivery. And I said, you know what? I'll buy them next time I pass an H&M. Uh, I'm not going to pay delivery. Now, can I afford uh, What's the delivery? Six bucks? I'm buying 10 pairs of, of boxer shorts for, I don't know, $3 a piece. I shouldn't care, but I do care because, of, again, because of the Amazon effect, because of the concept where I, I pay prime and I don't have to do that. And I'll figure out a way to do it there. The other thing is, is how important engagement has become right? About people feeling like they're no, and engagement doesn't necessarily mean talking or answering, giving questions and answering questions. It makes you, it, it, it's a feeling. In other words, I like to say that most people participate vicariously, meaning that a lot of brands think that they can't um, scale social because how are they going to answer all that pe those people? And I try to explain to them, most people have no interest in, in talking to you, but they are going to watch the conversations you have with your most actively engaged customers. And I think Amazon has accomplished that because when I engage even with an Alexa or Amazon shows me products that are relevant or anything like that, I feel that they know me. And I, I like to say that a brand that steps up into the engagement game will not only protect and extend its organic reach, but they'll also find a significant competitive advantage the way Amazon have. We all love when someone listens to us. You know, when your fans hear from you and you know they're listening to them, their excitement spreads. And I feel like Amazon listens to me, even though I've never had a social or direct conversation with them. Where do you think Amazon is lacking? I mean, the way you talk and just kind of what we see across the board with everyone shopping there and the amount of Prime members they have, 
right? They have a pretty good hold on commerce in general. Do you think they're lacking anywhere? Are they vulnerable yes. in any particular place right now? I think where they're lacking, and I believe that they're going to change that, is I don't think they have enough of a um, physical footprint. I think Whole Foods was training wheels for them. I think they have plans to buy many more. Um, again, I, by the way, I have no inside information. This comes from nobody in Amazon. This is totally my ideas, and I'm not nearly as smart as Jeff Bezos. I mean, not even fractionally. So uh, I don't claim to be, you know, coming up with ideas for him. But I believe he plans to buy a traditional grocer. I wouldn't be surprised to see him buy an Albertsons or a Kroger or somebody like that. I wouldn't be surprised to see them buy a 7-Eleven. I wouldn't be surprised to see them buy, I think they're going to buy a, either Target or Kohl's or somebody in that space. And I think they're going to buy a luxury retailer. And I, I, I mean, Nordstrom obviously comes to mind. They're in Seattle. They try, to, they try to go private because they can't accomplish. Most retailers are hindered by being public companies and needing money from the financial markets to support their business. So they can't make the changes they need to make. They have to worry about quarter-to-quarter -quarter numbers. They have to discount their way out of trouble. They can't begin again and rethink their, their, what they're doing. I think Nordstrom recognizes that, wanted to do it. They've always been you know, one of the most progressive retailers out there. And they tried to go private, but they couldn't get the financing because their sales aren't strong enough anymore and because they, they, it's being eaten into by competitors. So I think they were offered something like 13% financing and they needed 6% financing to make the deal work. And they were going to wait till after the holidays, hoping they could up their sales. But you know, that's a long way from 13% financing to 6% financing. But guess who could buy them easily and, and, and is right there in Seattle? Amazon. So, you know, I, I don't know what the plans are, how they're going to do this, but I see them buying a discounter, like a Kohl's or a Target. I say Kohl's because they've already made a couple of deals with Kohl's, and I think Kohl's opened the, the hen house door and let Amazon in, hoping that they would be that acquisition. Um, and, and then I see Target, who I think is having their lunch eaten by Walmart. I think in the traditional discounter space, Walmart is still slamming them. And, and I think they're, because of their thought of as being more of an upscale discounter, that they could fit in very well with the whole Whole Foods, Amazon thing. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see something there. And again, I think Whole Foods is training wheels. I see them buying a major uh, grocery chain. And what does this do? This gives them minute-to-minute -minute delivery options because they're lacking that right now. About I want it now and I want it today. They're expanding on it, but they don't have it. Whole Foods starts it for them. I think that they're looking for real estate from where to launch drones. I wouldn't be surprised to see drones you know, flying off of the roof of, of, of Whole Foods at some point and other retailers that they acquire them. Obviously, there's lots of things I don't know about that have to be solved in order for that to happen with air traffic control and all the other things, but it's coming. So I see it for that reason. Um, and I also see them wanting a distribution footprint. I mean, these stores can act as their warehouses you know, above and beyond the major facilities they've built in that direction. So I think that's their weakness, and I think that they're going to solve it. I wrote a piece back in November on why I think Amazon is trying to out-Walmart Walmart, and it really just talks about them opening brick-and-mortar locations. And I, for all the same reasons you talked about, but I also think that, right, and this would kind of lead us to a Walmart conversation, but I also think that they're the ones, and you saw it with Amazon Go, they're the ones thinking about customer experience inside the store. Mm -hmm. Walmart 
they say they do, but I mean, you get your greeter and then it's just, it's Walmart, right? Right. It's very hard for them yeah. to think that way because that's, that's, that's not their culture. That's not what they've built. They've gone a long way away from Sam's you know, original message, which is, you know, that deliver a better experience. And I think it's just hard for them to get away from the margins that they're used to, which are as slim as, slim as they are. Um, they have to even give up more of that in order to deliver on a better customer experience. And I think that's going to be hard for them. And I think that that's why I think Amazon is going to be looking at the, you know, the targets of the world, uh, the Nordstrom's, where the customer experience is fabulous, you know, in that respect. You know, Walmart's interesting because they're experimenting with personal shoppers, which I would not use at, at Walmart, pickup towers, right? These things that, quote unquote, enhance the experience, but, you know, employees delivering packages, you know, they're shutting down some Sam stores to turn the fulfillment center. So they're trying to replicate the Amazon model as best they can. But Amaz I think Amazon's, like you said, I think they're, they've got their eyes set on on hitting Walmart. Walmart's challenges. Walmart, oh, go ahead. I think Walmart's biggest weakness is that they are desperate to, to own a more upscale consumer and they just don't have access to it. And they're trying to achieve it. I don't. I just personally don't think they're going about it in the right way. I get why they want it. But like John tries to say, sell your consumer who loves you. They have consumers that love them. And they're, they're trying so hard. Jet is going to be about the millennial consumer and they want this and delivery into the home. And those are important things, yes. But you need to change the culture and the brand of Walmart. Because like I said on Cheddar once, and, and I've expanded it into posts on social. And by the way, Walmart reached out to me because, not to me, to re they reached out to people that, uh, that employ me to ask them to get me to stop doing this, to stop talking about it. But the <laughs> fact is, is that you and I and a lot of other people will buy anything that's branded Amazon, but we would never buy a Walmart branded product. And, and private label is getting a huge boost at Amazon because, and they're developing not only Amazon brands, but brands that are their own brands because we're very comfortable. Anybody, everybody will buy an Amazon brand from the low economic uh, sectors to the higher economic sectors. Whereas Walmart is incredibly limited by the people who will buy a Walmart branded product. So they either have to change that, and I know they're trying to do it with Jet, but everybody knows Walmart owns Jet because of what they've done there. So I think that's their biggest challenge is they need to, if, if they want to, they either have to realize that they, they're going to stay in, 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 their, in their stack, or if they want to move to more upscale customers, then they have to provide them with something that makes them feel better than the Walmart brand. Yeah, you know, my wife is probably like most women. She likes Target over Walmart. Right. But to your point, they could do whatever they want. In my wife's eyes, Walmart is still Walmart, and it's the bad pickup experience. It's the congested parking lot that you're walking. I don't know, for some reason, it's the same parking lot as Target, but it doesn't have the same feel as Target, right? It, it has that Walmart, quote-unquote Walmart feel. And I, don't, I don't mean to disparage Walmart here, but but you know what I'm saying, right? It's just no, but, it's but that dimly lit store. It's the, There's an important point there. I don't makes things better for that customer. 30% of customer, 30% of Walmart customers are unbanked. They don't have a credit card. They don't have a bank. So figure out something. In other words, instead of focusing on, on the things that go through banks, figure out a new currency. Figure out something that makes their ability to shop because they can't shop digitally because all they have is cash. So find a way to make, whether it's a, it's a Venmo or it's another kind of digital currency or it's an application, that makes it easier. Make their customers' lives easier instead of looking to find other customers. I mean, again, they should be doing both, but I think they take different initiatives. 
the Walmart customer loves Walmart. They will shop there forever. So make their life easier. And then if you're looking to get into that other area, figure out a way to change your branding so that people say, hey, I'm comfortable doing this. Like what, what woman in New York City is in an upscale, in an upscale building is going to have Walmart delivered to her? They're not because there's a stigma attached to it. So they need to figure out how to change that idea. And that takes a, that takes a lot, a, a lot, a big cultural change and a big marketing and branding change that I haven't seen them making an, uh, a real move into. But again, these are really smart people. Let's not underestimate Walmart that they, that they recognize now that something's happening and what are they doing to figure that out? Maybe, who knows? Maybe Mark Laurie is going to lead that charge. I think at some point he's going to move on from Walmart, but perhaps they're going to bring him well more into the traditional organization and figuring out how do we make that cultural and that branding change so that pe more people who are upscale accept our brand? We keep hearing about companies needing to change how they approach consumers, but you know these legacy brick and mortars, very few seem to actually do it. Why do you think companies are having such a slow time adopting? Like I said earlier, I think it's all, a lot of it is about Wall Street. A lot of it is about the way these companies are structured. They've got to meet quarterly earnings reports. They've got to meet target numbers. Um, if they don't meet them, it's not just that their stock might go down or that they might have unhappy shareholders. It's that their financing is going to go up. Uh, I, again, I am not a financial expert, but from the knowledge I have of it, a lot of these companies are desperate to make their numbers because if, if their stock goes down, then their financing costs go up, and it's kind of like a double whammy. And it's why I think that's why I believe Nordstrom was looking to go private. So I think a big problem is expectations of shareholders, expectations of the banks, expectations of, of the people that are funding these businesses. And it's something they've built over the years. And the only way to, to get around that is to break that cycle. When I was at Elf Cosmetics, Islipsface.com, even as a family-owned business, we had our sales and, and they, they got very wrapped up into discounting. And we were known. We were selling a dollar damn cosmetic and the women still waited till we gave them 25% off to buy it. Why? Because we, tra we trained them that way. And we had conversation after conversation about how do we change that? How do we stop that? How do we make it? And what we would tell the owners is, well, you're going to have to suffer a little bit because our sales will go down this month because during the course of the month, there are people are going to wait until we discount and they're, they're going to sit there saying to each other, don't worry, they'll send an email, we'll get a discount. And what would always happen? They'd say, no, 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 we're going to do it this time. And for the first three weeks of the month, there'd be no discounting. And we would watch our sales not even come close to our normal expectations. And then the last week of the month, the owners would walk away and go, discount, send out an offer. We've got to get our numbers up. And, and they weren't even subject to these things from, from Wall Street at the time or the financing. They were just subject to their expectations and how much money they wanted to make every month. But every month we'd fall back into that discounting cycle. So imagine for a company that's reliant on Wall Street and reliant on the banks for their financing. So to me, that cycle has to be broken. And that's why, so you either have to get acquired by a parent that can suffer those things, like an Amazon who says, screw the street, I don't care. I'm, Jeff Bezos is amazing at this. And it's why I also think Facebook is going to be the winner in their space because I think Zuckerberg is not only brilliant enough but owns enough of the equity in the company. Like, screw you guys. I'm going to do it my way. And, and I think companies are going to go private. I think some, a lot, I think like Dix is dead, Macy's is dead, Sears is dead, Kmart is dead, um, JCPenney, dead. They're gone. They're never going to come back because they can't take what it, what it, they can't do what it takes to do that. They're just going to keep discounting and keep that spiral going. So I think that some of these companies have to find parents. They're, they're going to get acquired, whether it's by Walmart, whether it's by Amazon, whether it's by Google or Apple, or the companies that have the pocketbooks and the patience to allow it to happen.
So just real quick, we'll have info in the show notes on how to contact you, but if someone wants to reach out, Ted, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Well, it's real easy. Um, email tedrubin at gmail.com. My social platforms are all at Ted Rubin. Feel free to reach out to me there. Make sure if it's on Facebook or LinkedIn, if you are trying to connect with me, um, I do have limited space on, on Facebook, and I will not accept you if you don't write me a personal note explaining why you'd like to connect with me. Um, also, I just want to make one quick thing. We mentioned Photify earlier. It's Photify is spelled P-H-O-T. P-O-F-Y. So it's photify.com. And in the App Store, it's Photify app. P-H-O-T-O-F-Y-A-P-P. And uh, again, reach out to me anytime there, and I'll look forward to hearing from any of your audience. Thanks so much, Ted. Thanks again for the time. I certainly do appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. As you know, reach out anytime. I'm happy to engage with you, and you don't need an appointment. Just ring my phone or shoot me an email or shoot me a text. You too, Ted. Thanks so much. You got it, man. Have a great day. Ted Rubin, CMO of Brand Invaders and Photofy and co-founder of Prevailing Path. To those listening, hope you enjoyed the episode, but certainly let me know one way or the other. And if there are topics you'd like to hear about, or if you're interested in telling your e-commerce story, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for your attention. Until next time, have a great day, everyone, and be good to people.